Hey y'all, this is your storyteller, and welcome back to The Mockingbirds, Readings from the Damned. We're currently on Fight Club by Chuck Palupnik, but before I read, it's an anniversary for us, and by us I don't just mean the land of the free, the home of the brave, the United States of America. I mean all of us. The whole world sat and watched as the planes flew into the towers in the Pentagon in New York and DC. And as the other plane landed in field in Pennsylvania because the people on that plane were not going to allow it to hit anything else. So we all watched the planes. We all watched the jumpers. And we watched it all live and in color on 24-hour news. As for me, I'm a former first responder. So I don't remember the planes much or the jumpers. I remember and mourn my family. The first trucks arrived at the towers in five seconds. It took them five seconds to respond. And those that arrived in those first five seconds had a fucking skyscraper fall on them. Think about that for a second. They chose to be a firefighter. They chose to be a police officer. They chose to be a medic. They chose a job that sometimes requires them to put the lives of the public before their own. And I know this because they know this. So today, instead of watching those planes hit the building over and over and watching the jumpers keep falling, falling, and the building collapse and the explosions at the Pentagon. Don't watch those. I want you to go to my Twitter at damnedbooks underscore 451 and I want you to watch Jon Stewart. I want you to watch Jon Stewart fucking cream Congress's ass so I'm going to put the YouTube link up on a on a tweet so it'll be easy to access and I want you to watch Jon Stewart
instead of the planes. Thank you. All right. So now we're going to read uh, Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Chapter 17. My boss brings me another sheet of paper to my desk and sets it at my elbow. I don't even wear tie anymore. My boss is wearing his blue tie. Must be Thursday. The door to my boss's office is always closed now, and we haven't traded more than two words any day since he found the Fight Club rules in the copy machine. And I maybe implied that I might gut him with a shotgun blast. You know, just me clowning around again. Or I might call the compliance people at the Department of Transportation. There's a front seat mounting bracket that never passed collision testing before it went into production. If you know where to look, there are bodies buried everywhere. Morning, I say. He says, morning. Set in my elbow is another, for my eyes only, important secret document. Tyler wanted me to type up and copy. A week ago, Tyler was pacing out the dimensions of the basement of a rented house on Paper Street. It's 65 shoe lengths front to back and 40 shoe lengths side to side. Tyler was thinking out loud. Tyler asked me, What is six times seven? Forty-two and forty-two times three? One hundred and twenty-six? Tyler gave me a handwritten list of notes and said to type it and make seventy-two copies. Why that many? Because, Tyler said, that's how many guys can sleep in the basement if we put them in a triple-decker army surplus bunk beds. I asked, what about their stuff? Tyler said, they won't bring any more than what's on the list, and it all should fit under a mattress. The list my boss finds on the copy machine, the copy machine counter, still set for 72 copies. The list says, bringing the required items does not guarantee admission to training, but no applicant will be considered unless he arrives equipped with the following items and exactly $500 cash for personal burial money. It costs at least $300 to cremate an indigent corpse, Tyler told me, and the price was going up. Anyone who dies with at least, without at least this much money, their body goes to an autopsy class. This money must always be carried in the student's shoe, so if the student is ever killed, his death will not be a burden on Project Mayhem. In addition, the applicant has to arrive with the following. Two black shirts, two black pairs of trousers, one pair of heavy black shoes, two pair of black socks, and two pair of plain underwear, one heavy black coat, this includes the clothes the applicant has on his back, one white towel, one army surplus cot mattress, one plastic mixing bowl, 
at my desk, with my boss still standing there. I pick up the original list and tell him thanks. My boss goes into his office. I set to work playing solitaire on my computer. After work, I give Tyler the copies, and days go by. I go to work. I come home. I go to work. I come home. And there's a guy standing on our front porch. The guy's at our, the front porch with his second black shirt and pants and brown sack. And he's got the last three items. A white towel, an army surplus mattress, and a plastic bowl set on the porch railing. From an upstairs window, Tyler and I peek out at the guy. Tyler tells me to send the guy away. He's too young, Tyler says. The guy on the porch is Mr. Angelface, whom I tried to destroy the night Tyler invented Project Mayhem. Even with his two black eyes and blonde crew cut, you can see his tough, pretty scowl without any wrinkles or scars. Put him in a dress, make him smile, he'd be woman. Mr. Angel just stands his toes against the front door, just looks straight ahead into the splintering wood with his hands at his sides, wearing black shoes, black shirt, black pair of trousers. Get rid of him, Tyler says to me. Too young. I ask, how young is too young? It doesn't matter, Tyler said. If the applicant is young, we tell him he's too young. If he's fat, we tell him he's too fat. If he's old, he's too old. Thin, he's too thin. White, too white. Black, too black. This is how Buddhist temples have tested applicants going back a bazillion years, Tyler says. You tell the applicant to go away, and if his resolve is so strong, he waits at the entrance without food, shelter, encouragement for three days. Then, and only then, can he enter and begin the training. So I tell Mr. Angelface that he's too young, but at lunchtime, he's still there. After lunch, I go out and beat Mr. Angel with a broom and kick the guy's sack into the street. From upstairs, Tyler watches me stickball the broom upside the kid's ear, and the kid just stands there. Then I kick his stuff into the gutter and scream. Go away, I'm screaming. Haven't you heard? You're too young. You'll never make it, I scream. Come back in a couple of years and apply again. Just go. Get off my porch. The next day, the guy is still there. And Tyler goes out. I'm sorry, Tyler said. He's sorry he told the guy about training. But the guy really is too young. And would he please just go? Good cop, bad cop. I scream at the poor guy again. Six hours later, Tyler goes out and says he's sorry, but no. The guy has to leave. Tyler says he's going to call the police if the guy won't leave. And the guy stays. And his clothes are still in the gutter. The wind takes the torn paper sack away. And the guy stays. On the third day, another applicant is at the front door. Mr. Angel is still there. And Tyler goes down and tells Mr. Angel, Come in. Get your stuff out of the street and come in. 
To the new guy, Tyler says he's sorry, but there's been a mistake. The new guy is too old to train here, and would he please leave? I go to work every day. I come home, and every day there's one or two guys waiting on the front porch. These new guys don't make eye contact. I shut the door, and I leave them on the porch. This happens every day for a while. Sometimes applicants will leave, but most times the applicants stick it out until the third day. Until most of the 72 bunk beds Tyler and I bought and set up in the basement are full. One day, Tyler gives me $500 in cash and tells me to keep it in my shoe at all times. My personal burial money. This is another old Buddhist monastery thing. I come home from work now, and the house is filled with strangers that Tyler has accepted, all of them working. The whole first floor turns into a kitchen and a soap factory. The bathroom is never empty. Teams of men disappear for days and come back with red rubber bags of thin, watery fat. One night, Tyler comes upstairs to find me hiding in my room and says, Don't bother them. They all know what to do. It's all Project Mayhem. No guy understands the whole plan, but each guy is is trained to do one simple task. Perfect. The rule in Project Mayhem is you have to trust Tyler. Then, Tyler's gone. Teams of Project Mayhem render fat all day. I'm not sleeping. All night I hear their teams mixing the lye and cutting the bars bake the bars of soap on cookie sheets, then wrap each bar in tissue and seal it with the Paper Street Soap Company label. Everyone except me seems to know what to do, and Tyler is never home. I hug the walls, being a mouse trapped in this clockwork of silent men with energy of trained monkeys, cooking and working and sleeping in teams, pull a lever, push a button, A team of space monkey cooks meals all day, and all day teams of space monkeys are eating out of the plastic bowls they brought with them. One morning I'm leaving for work. Big Bob is on the front porch, wearing black shoes and a black shirt and pants. I ask, has he seen Tyler lately? Did Tyler send him here? The first rule about Project Mayhem? Big Bob says, with his heels together and his back ramrod straight, is you don't ask about Project Mayhem. So what brainless little honor has Tyler assigned him, I ask. There are guys whose job is to boil rice all day, or wash out eating bowls or clean the crapper all day. Has Tyler promised Big Bob enlightenment if he spends 16 hours a day Wrapping bars of soap? Big Bob doesn't say anything. I go to work. I come home. Big Bob is still on the porch. I don't sleep all night. And the next morning, Big Bob is out tending the garden. Before I leave for work, I ask Big Bob, Who let him in? Who assigned him this task? Did he see Tyler? Was Tyler here last night? Big Bob says the first rule in Project Mayhem is you don't cut him off. Yeah, 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 yes, I know. And while I'm at work, teams of space monkeys 
dig out the muddy lawn around our house and cut the dirt with Epsom salt to lower the acidity and spade in loads of free steer manure from stockyards and bags of hair clippings from barber shops to ward off moles and mice and boost the protein in the soil. At any time of the night, space monkeys come from the slaughterhouse with bags of blood meal to boost the iron in the soil and bone meal to boost the phosphorus. Teams of space monkey plant basil and thyme and lettuce and starts of witch hazel and eucalyptus and mock orange, mint in a kaleidoscope knot pattern, a rose window in every shade of green. And the other teams go out at night, kill the slugs and snails by candlelight. Another team of space monkeys picks only the most perfect leaves and juniper berries to boil for a natural dye. Comfrey because it's a natural gene, uh, disinfectant violet leaves because it cures headaches, and sweet woodruff because it gives the soap a cut grass smell. In the kitchen, there are bottles of 80-proof vodka to make translucent rose gerarium and brown sugar soap and the, patch and the patchouli soap, and I steal a bottle of vodka and spend my own personal burial money with cigarettes. Marla shows up. We talk about the plants. Marla and I walk on raked gravel paths through the kaleidoscope, green patterns of the garden, and drinking and smoking. We talk about her breasts. We talk about everything except Tyler. And one day, it's in the newspaper how a team of men wearing black had stormed through a better neighborhood and a luxury car dealership slamming baseball bats against the front bumpers of cars so that the airbags inside would explode into a powdery mess with their car alarms screaming. At the Paper Street Soap Company, other teams pick up the petals from roses or anemones and lavender and pack the flowers into boxes with a cake of pure tallow that will absorb the scent for making soap with a flower smell. Marla tells me about the plants. The rose, Marla tells me, is a natural astringent. Some of the plants have obituary names. Iris, basil, rue, rosemary, and verbena. Some, like meadowsweet or cowslips, sweet flag and spikern, are like names of Shakespeare fairies. Deer tongue, with its sweet vanilla smell. Witch hazel, another natural astringent. Oswis root, and the wild Spanish iris. Every night, Marla and I walk in the garden until I'm sure that Tyler is not coming home that night. Right behind us is always a space monkey, trailing us to pick up the twist of balm or rue or mint Marla crushes under my nose. Drop cigarette butt. The space monkey rakes the path behind him to erase our ever being there. And one night, in an uptown square park, another group of men poured gasoline around every tree, from tree to tree to tree, and set a perfect little forest fire. It was in the newspaper. How townhouse windows across the street from the fire melted 
and parked cars farted and settled on melted flat tires. Tyler's rented house on Paper Street is a living thing, wet on the inside from so many people sweating and breathing. So many people are moving inside the house moves. Another night that Tyler doesn't come home, someone was drilling bank machines and pay telephones and screwing then screwing lube fittings into the drilled holes and using the grease gun, gun to pump the bank machines and the pay telephones full of axle grease or vanilla pudding. And Tyler was never at home. But after a month, a few of the space monkeys had Tyler's kiss burned into the back of their hand. And then those space monkeys, gone. And new ones were on the front porch to replace them. And every day, the teams of men came home and went in different cars. You never saw the same car twice. One evening, I hear Marla on the front porch telling a space monkey, I'm here to see Tyler. Tyler Durden, Tyler Durden. He lives here. I'm his friend. The space monkey says, I'm sorry, but you're too... too he pauses. You're too young to train here. Marla says... Get screwed. Besides, the space monkey says, you haven't brought the required items. Two black shirts, two pair of black pants. Marla screams, Tyler! I One pair of heavy black shoes. Tyler! Two pairs of black socks and two pairs of plain under. Tyler! I hear the front door slam. Marla does not wait the three days. Most days after work, I come home and make a peanut butter sandwich. When I come home, one space monkey is reading the assembled space monkeys who sit covering the whole first floor. You are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You are the same decaying organic matter as everyone else, and we are all part of the same compost pile. The space monkey continues. Our culture has made us all the same. No one is truly white or black or rich anymore. We all want the same individuality. We are nothing. The reader stops when I walk in to make my sandwich, and the space monkeys sit silent as if I were alone. I say, don't bother. I've already read it. I typed it. Even my boss has probably read it. We're all just a big bunch of crap, I say. Go ahead, play your little game, don't mind me. The space monkeys wait in quiet while I make my sandwich, take another bottle of vodka, and go upstairs. Behind me I hear, You are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. I am Joe's broken heart, because Tyler's dumped me. Because my father dumped me. I could go on and on. Some nights after work, I go to a different fight club in the basement of a bar garage. And I ask if anybody's seen Tyler Durden. In every new fight club, someone I've never met is standing under one light in the center of darkness, surrounded by men and reading Tyler's words. The first rule about fight club is you don't talk about Fight Club. When the fights get started, I take the club leader aside and ask if he's seen Tyler. 
I live with Tyler, I say. He hasn't been home for a while. The guy's eyes get big, and he asks, Do I really know Tyler Durden? This happens in most of the new fight clubs. Yes, I say, I'm best buddies with Tyler. Then everybody all of a sudden wants to shake my hand. These new guys stare at the butthole in my cheek, and the black skin on my face, and the yellow and green around the edges, and they call me sir. No, sir. Not hardly, sir. Nobody knows, nobody they know has ever met Tyler Durden. Friends of friends have met Tyler Durden, and they founded this chapter of Fight Club, sir. Then they wink at me. Nobody they know has ever seen Tyler Durden, sir. Is this true? Everybody asks. Is Tyler Durden building an army? That's the word. Tyler Durden only sleeps one hour a night. Rumor has it that Tyler's on the road starting fight clubs all over the country. What's next? Everybody wants to know. The meetings for Project Mayhem have moved to bigger basements because each committee, arson, Assault, mischief, and misinformation gets bigger as more guys graduate out of a fight club. Each committee has a leader, and even the leaders don't know where Tyler's at. Tyler calls them every week on the phone. Everyone on Project Mayhem wants to know what's next. Where are we going? What is there to look forward to? On Paper Street, Marla and I walk through the garden at night with our bare feet, every step brushing off the smell of sage lemon verbena and rose geranium. Black shirts and black pants hunch around us with their candles, lifting plant leaves to kill a snail or a slug. Marla asks, what's going on here? Tufts of hair surface beneath dirt clods. Hair and shit. Bone meal, blood meal. The plants are growing faster than the space monkeys can cut them back. Marla asks, what are you going to do? What's the word? In the dirt is a shining spot of gold, and I kneel down to see. What's going to happen next? I don't know, I tell Marla. It looks like we've both been dumped. In the corner of my eye, space monkeys pace around in black, each one hunched over his candle. The little spot of gold in the dirt is a molar with a gold filling. Next to it surface two more molars with silver amaglin fillings. It's a jawbone. I say no. I can't say what's going on what's going to happen. And I push the one, two, three molars in the dirt and the hair and the shit and the bone and the blood where Marla won't see. Chapter 18 This Friday night, I fall asleep at my desk at work. When I wake up, my face and my crossed arms on the de desktop, the telephone is ringing and everyone else is gone. A telephone was ringing in my dream, and it's not clear if reality slipped into my dream or if my dream's slopping over into reality. I answer the phone. 
Compliance and liability. That's my department. Compliance and liability. The sun is going down, and the piled-up storm clouds the size of Wyoming and Japan are headed our way. It's not like I have a window at work. All the outside walls are floor-to-ceiling glass. Everything where I work is floor-to-ceiling glass. Everything is vertical blinds. Everything is industrial low-pile gray carpets spotted with little tombstone monuments where PC plugs into the network. Everything is a maze of cubicles boxed in with fences of unupholstered plywood. My A vacuum cleaner hums somewhere. My boss has gone on vacation. He sent me an email and disappeared. I am to prepare for a formal review in two weeks. Reserve a conference room. Get all my ducks in a row. Update my resume, that sort of thing. They're building a case against me. I am Joe's complete lack of surprise. I've been behaving miserably. I pick up the phone and it's Tyler and he says, Go outside. There's some guys waiting for you in the parking lot. I ask, Who are they? They're all waiting, Tyler says. I smell gasoline on my hands. Tyler goes, Hit the road. They have a car outside. They have a Cadillac. I'm still asleep here. I'm not sure if Tyler is my dream or if I'm Tyler's dream. I sniff the gasoline on my hands. There's no one else around and I get up and I walk out to the parking lot. A guy in Fight Club works on cars, so he parked at the curb in somebody's black corniche and all I can do is look at him, all black and gold this huge cigarette case ready to drive me somewhere. This mechanic who gets out of the car and tells me not to worry. He switched the plates with another car in long-term parking lot at the airport. Our fight club mechanic says he can start anything. Two wires twist out of the steering column. Touch the wires together and you have a complete circuit to the starter solenoid. You got it. Car to joyride. Either that or you just hacked the key code through the dealership. Three space monkeys are sitting in the back seat wearing their black shirts and black pants. Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. I ask, so where's Tyler? The flight club mechanic guy is holding the Cadillac open chauffeur style for me. The mechanic is tall and all bones with shoulders that remind you of a telephone pole crossbar. I ask, are we going to see Tyler? Waiting for me in the middle of the front seat is a birthday cake with candles ready to be lit. I get in and we start driving. Every week after Fight Club, you've got no problem driving inside the speed limit. Maybe you've been passing black shit, internal injuries for two days, but you are so cool. Other cars drive around you, cars tailgate. You get the finger from other drivers. Total strangers hate you. There's absolutely nothing personal. After Fight Club, you're so relaxed, you can't even care. You don't even turn the radio on. Maybe your ribs stab along a hairline fracture every time you take a breath. The cars behind you blink their lights. 
The sun is going down, orange and gold. The mechanic is there, driving. The birth birthday cake is on the seat between us. It is one scary fuck to see guys like our mechanic at Fight Club. Skinny guys. They never go limp. They will fight until they are hamburger. White guys are like skeletons dipped in yellow wax with tattoos. Black men are like dried meat. These guys usually hang together. The way you see... The way you can picture them at Narcotics Anonymous. They never say stop. It's like they're all energy shaking so fast they blur around the edges. These guys in recovery from something. As if the only choice they have left is how they're going to die and they want to die in a fight. They fight each other, these guys. No one will no one else will tag them for a fight. And they can't tag anyone else except another twitching skinny all bones and brush since nobody else will register them to fight. Guys watching don't even yell when guys like our mechanic go at each other. All you hear is the fighters breathing through their teeth, hands slapping for a hold, the whistle and impact when fists hammer and hammer into thin hollow ribs, point blank in a clinch. You see tendons and muscle and veins under the skin of these guys jump. Their skin shines, sweating, cording, and wet under one light. Ten, fifteen minutes disappear. Their smell, their sweat, these guys smell, it reminds them of fried chicken. Twenty minutes of a fight club will go by. Finally, one guy will go down. After the fight, the two drug recovery guys will hang together for the rest of the night, wasted and smiling from fighting so hard. Since fight club, this mechanic guy is always hanging around the house on Paper Street. Wants me to hear the song he wrote. Wants me to see the birdhouse he built. The guy showed me a picture of some girl and asked me if she was pretty enough to marry. Sitting in the front seat of the corniche, the guy says, Did you see this cake? I made it for you. I made it for this. It's not my birthday. Some oil was getting around the rings, the mechanic guy says. But I changed the oil in the air filter. I checked the valve lash and the timing. It's supposed to rain tonight, so I thought I'd change the blades. I ask, what has Tyler been planning? The mechanic opens the ashtray and pushes the cigarette lighter in. Is this a test? Are you testing us? Where's Tyler? The first rule about Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club, the mechanic says. And the first rule about Project Mayhem is you don't ask questions. So what can he tell me? He says, you'll have to understand. Is your father your model for God? Behind us, my job and my office are smaller and smaller and smaller and then gone. I sniff the gasoline on my hands. The mechanic says, if you're male and Christian and living in America, your father is the model for God. And if you never knew your father, if your father 
bails out or dies or is never at home, what do you believe about God? This is all Tyler Durden dogma, scrawled on bits of paper while I was asleep and given to me to type and photocopy at work. I've read it all. Even my boss has probably read it all. What you end up doing, the mechanic says, is spending, is you spend your life searching for a father and God. What you have to consider is, he says, is the possibility that God doesn't like you. Could be God hates you. And this is not the worst thing that can happen. How Tyler saw it was that getting God's attention for being bad was better than getting no attention at all. Maybe because God's hate is better than his indifference. If you could be either God, God's worst enemy or nothing, which would you choose? We are God's middle children, according to Tyler Durden. We have no special place in history, no special attention. Unless we get God's attention, we have no, we have no hope of damnation or redemption. Which is worse, hell or nothing? Only if we get caught and punished can we be saved. Burn the Louvre, the mechanic says, and wipe your ass with the Mona Lisa. This way, at least, God will know our names. The lower you fall, the higher you fly. The further you run, the more God wants you back. If the prodigal son had never left home, the mechanic says, the fatted calf would still be alive. And it's not enough to be numbered with the grains of sand on the beach or the stars in the sky. The mechanic merges the black corniche into an old bypass highway with no passing lane, and already a line of trucks strings together behind us, going the legal speed limit. The corniche fills up with headlights behind us, and there we are, talking, reflecting, in the inside of the windshield, driving the speed limit, as fast as the law will allow. A law is a law, Tyler would say. Driving too fast is the same as setting a fire, was the same as planting a bomb, was the same as shooting a man. A criminal is a criminal is a criminal. Last week, we could have filled another four fight clubs, the mechanic says. Maybe Big Bob can take over running the next chapter if we find a bar. So the next week, he'll go through the rules with Big Bob and give him a fight club of his own. From now on, when a leader starts a fight club, when everyone is standing around in the light in the center of the basement waiting, the leader should walk around and around the outside of the crowd in the dark. I ask, who made up the new rules? Is it Tyler? The mechanic smiles and says, you know who made up the rules. And the new rule is that nobody should be in the center of Fight Club, he says. Nobody's the center of Fight Club except the two men fighting. The leader's voice will yell, walking slowly around the crowd, out in the darkness. The men in the crowd will stare at the other men across the empty center of the room. This is how it will be at all fight clubs. Finding a bar or garage to host a new fight club isn't tough. 
the first bar, the one where the original Fight Club still meets. They make their month's rent in just one Fight Club Saturday night. According to the mechanic, another Fight Club rule is that Fight Club will always be free. It'll never cost to get in. The mechanic yells out of the driver's window onto oncoming traffic and the night wind pouring from the side of the car. We want you, not your money. The mechanic yells out of the window. As long as you're at a fight, you're not how much money you've got in the bank. You are not your job. You are not your family. And you are not who you tell yourself. The mechanic yells into the wind. You are not your name. A space monkey in the back of a seat picks it up. You are not your problems. The mechanic yells. You are not your problems. Space monkey shouts. You are not your age. The mechanic yells. You are not your age. Here, the mechanic swerves us into an oncoming lane, filling the car with headlights through a windshield, cool as ducking jabs. One car and another comes at us, head on screaming its horn, and the mechanic swerves just enough to miss each one. Headlights come at us bigger and bigger, horns screaming, and the mechanic cranes forward into the glare and noise and screams, You are not your hopes. No one takes up the yell. This time, the car is coming head-on, uh, head, head swerves in time to save us. Another car comes on, headlights blinking high, low, high, low, high, low, horn blaring, and the mechanic screams, You will not be saved. The mechanic doesn't swerve, but the head-on car swerves. Another car and the mechanic screams, we are all going to die someday. This time, the oncoming car swerves, but the mechanic swerves back in its path. The car swerves and the mechanic matches it head-on again. You melt and swell at that moment. For that moment, nothing matters. Look up at the stars and you're gone. Not your luggage. Nothing matters, not your bad breath. The windows are dark outside and the horns are blaring at you. The headlights are flashing high, low, high, low in your face. And you will never have to go to work again. You will never have to get another haircut. Quick, the mechanic says. And the car swerves again and the mechanic swerves back into its path. What, he says, what will you wish you'd done before you died? With the oncoming car screaming its horn and the mechanic so cool he even looks away to look at me beside him in the front seat. He says, ten seconds to impact. Nine. In eight. Seven. In six. My job, I say. I'd quit my job. The scream goes by as the car swerves and the mechanic doesn't swerve to hit it. The more lights coming at us just ahead. The mechanic turns to the three monkeys in the back seat. Hey, space monkey, he says. You see how the game is played? Fess up now or you're all dead. A car drives, a car passes us on the right with a bumper sticker that says, I drive better when I'm drunk. 
the newspaper says a thousand of these bumper stickers just appeared on cars one morning. Another bumper sticker said things like, Make mine veal, drunk drivers against mothers, recycle all animals. Reading the newspaper, I knew the misinformation committee had pulled this. Or maybe the mischief committee. Beside me, our clean and sober fight club in Kent tells me, yeah, the drunk bumper stickers are part of Project Mayhem. The three space monkeys are quiet in the back. The mischief committee is printing airline pocket cards that show passengers fighting each other for oxygen masks while their jetliner flames down towards the rocks in a thousand miles an hour. The mischief and misinformation committees are racing around each other to develop a computer virus that will make automated bank tellers sick enough to vomit storms of tens and twenty dollar bills. The cigarette lighter in the dash pops out hot, and the mechanic tells me to light the candles on my birthday cake. I light the candle, and the cake shimmers under a little halo of fire. What will you wish you've done before you died? The mechanic said, and swerves us into the path of a truck coming head on. The truck hits the air horn, bellowing one loud blast after another as the truck's headlights, like a sunrise, come brighter and brighter to sparkle off the mechanic's smile. Make your wish, quick, he says, in the rearview mirror where the three space monkeys are sitting. We've got five seconds to oblivion. One, he says. Two, the truck is in front of us, blinding bright and rolling. Three, ride a horse, comes from the back seat. Build a house, comes another voice. Get a tattoo. The mechanic says, believe in me and you shall die forever. Too late, the truck swerves and the mechanic swerves, but the rear of our corniche fishtails against the end of the trunk truck's front bumper. Not that I know at this time. What I know the light, what I know is the lights. The truck's headlights blink out of the darkness and I'm thrown first against the passenger door and then against the birthday cake and the mechanic behind the steering wheel. The mechanic's lying crabbed on the wind, on the wheel to keep it straight and the birthday candles snuff out. In one perfect second, there is no light inside of the warm black leather car, and our shouts all hit the same deep note and the same low moan of the truck's air horn, and we have no control, no choice, no direction, and no escape, and we're dead. My wish for me right now is for me to die. I am nothing in the world compared to Tyler. I am helpless. I am stupid, and all I want and need things. My tiny life, my sh little shit job, my Swedish furniture, and I never know, never told anyone this, but before I met Tyler, I was planning on buying a dog and naming it Entourage. This is how bad your life can get. Kill me. I grab the steering wheel and crank us back into traffic. Now, Prepare to eva evacuate Seoul. Now. The mechanic wrestles the wheel towards the ditch, and I wrestle to fucking 
die. Now, the amazing miracle of death, when one second you're walking and talking, and the next second you're an object. I am nothing. I'm not even that. Cold, invisible. I smell leather. My seatbelt feels twisted like a straitjacket against me. And when I try to sit up, I hit my head against the steering wheel. This hurts more than it should. My head is resting on the mechanic's lap as I look up. My eyes adjust to see the mechanic's face high over me, smiling and driving, and I can see stars outside of the driver's window. My hands and face are sticky with something. Blood? Buttercream frosting. The mechanic looks down. Happy birthday. I smell smoke and remember the birthday cake. I almost broke the steering wheel with your head, he said. Just nothing else. Just the night air and the smell of smoke and the stars and the mechanic smiling and driving in my head in his lap. All of a sudden, I don't feel like I have to sit up. Where's the cake? The mechanic says, on the floor. Just the night air and the smell of smoke is heavier. Did I get my wish? Up and above me, outlined against the stars in the window, his face smiles. Those birthday candles, he says, are the kind that never go out. In the starlight, my eyes adjust enough to see smoke braiding up from little fires all around us in the carpet. Chapter 19 The Fight Club mechanic is standing on the gas, raging behind the wheel in his quiet way. And we still have something important to do tonight. One thing I'll have to learn before the end of civilization is how to look at the stars and tell where we're going. Things are quiet as driving a Cadillac through outer space. We must be off the freeway. The three guys in the back seat are passed out or asleep. You had a near-life experience, the mechanic says. He takes one hand off the steering wheel and touches the long welt where my forehead bounced off the steering wheel. My forehead is swelling enough to shut both my eyes. He runs a cold fingertip down the length of the swelling. The corniche hits a bump, and the pain seems to bump out over my eyes like a shadow from the brim of cap. Our twisted rear springs and bumper bark and creak in the quiet around our rush down the night road. The mechanic says how the back bumper of the corniche is hanging by its ligaments, how it was torn almost free when it caught the end of the truck's front bumper. I ask, is tonight part of his homework for Project Mayhem? Part of it, he says. I have to make four human sacrifices. I have to pick up a load of fat. Fat? For the soap. What is Tyler planning? The mechanic starts talking, and it's pure Tyler Durden. 
I see the strongest and smartest men who have ever lived, he says. His face outlined the stars in the driver's window, and these men are pumping gas and waiting tables. The drop of his forehead, his brow, the slip of his nose, his eyelashes, the curve of his eyes, the plastic profile of his mouth, talking. These are out, all outlined in black against the stars. If we could put these men in training camps and finish raising him, all a gun does is focus an explosion in one direction. You have a class of young, strong men and women, and they want to give their lives to something. Advertising has these people chasing cars and clothes they don't need. Generations have been working in jobs they hate just so they can buy what they don't need. We don't have a great war in our generation or a great depression, but we do have a great war of the spirit. We have a great revolution against culture. A great depression is our lives. We have a spiritual depression. We have to show these men and women freedom by enslaving them and show them courage by frightening them. Napoleon bragged that he could train men to sacrifice their lives for a scrap of ribbon. Imagine when we call a strike and everyone refuses to work until we redistribute the wealth of the world. Imagine an elk, a hunting an elk, through the damp canyon forest in the ruins of the Rockefeller Center. What you said about your job, the mechanic said, did you really mean it? Yeah, I meant it. That's why we're on the road tonight, he says. We're at a hunting party, and we're hunting for fat. We're going to the medical waste dump. We're going to the medical waste incinerator. There, among the discarded surgical drapes and wound dressing, ten-year-old tumors and intravenous tubes and discarded needles, scary stuff, like scary shit, among the blood samples and the amputated tidbits. We find more money than we can haul away in one night, even if we're driving a dump truck. We can find enough money to load this corniche down to the axle stops. Fat, the mechanic said. Liposuctioned fat sucked out of the richest thighs in America. The richest, fattest thighs in the world. Our goal is the big red bags of liposuction fat we need to haul back to Paper Street and render and mix with lye and rosemary and sell it back to the very people who paid to have us sucked out at 20 bucks a bar. These are the only folks who can afford it. The richest, creamiest fat in the world. The fat of the land, he says. That makes tonight kind of a Robin Hood thing. While we're there, he says, we're supposed to look for some of those hepatitis bugs, too. Chapter 20 The tears were really coming now, and one fat stripe rolled along the barrel of the gun, down the loop around the trigger to burst flat against my index finger. Raymond Hessel closed both his eyes as I pressed the gun hard against his temple so he would always feel it pressing there. And I was beside him, and this was his life, 
and he could be dead at any moment. This wasn't a cheap gun. I wondered if salt might fuck it up. Everything has gone so easy, I wondered. I'd done everything the mechanic said to do. This is why we needed to buy a gun. This was doing my homework. We each had to bring Tyler 12 driver's license. This would prove that we made 12 human sacrifices. I parked tonight and I waited around the block for Raymond Hessel to finish his shift at the all-night corner mart. And around midnight, he was waiting for a night owl bus when I finally walked up and said hello. Raymond Hessel? Raymond didn't say anything. Probably he figured I was after his money, his minimum wage, the $14 in his wallet. Oh, Raymond Hessel, all 23 years of you. When you started crying, tears rolling down the barrel of my gun pressed to your temple. No, this wasn't about money. Not everything's about money. You didn't even say hello. You're not your sad little wallet. I said nice night, cold but clear. You didn't even say hello. I said don't run or I'll have to shoot you in the back. I had the gun out and I was wearing a latex glove so if the gun ever became people's exhibit A, there'd be nothing on it except the dried tears of Raymond Hessel, Caucasian, age 23, no distinguishing marks. Then I had your attention. Your eyes were big enough to be big enough that even in the street light I could see that they were anti-freeze green. You were jerking backwards and backwards a little more every time. The gun touched your face as if the barrel was too hot or too cold. Until I said, don't step back. And then you let the gun touch you. But even then you rolled your head up away from the barrel. You gave me your wallet like I asked. Your name is Raymond K. Hessel on your driver's license. You live at 1320 Southeast Benning, Apartment A. That had to be a basement apartment. They usually give basement apartments letters instead of numbers. Raymond K. 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 Hessel. I'm talking to you. Your head rolled up and away from the gun and you say yeah and say yes you lived in a basement you had some pictures in your wallet too there was your mother this was a tough one from you you had to open your eyes and see the picture of mom and dad smiling and see the gun at the same time but you did and then your eyes closed and you started to cry you were going to cool the amazing miracle of death one minute you're a person, the next minute you're an object. And mom and dad would have to call old doctor whoever and get your dental records because there wouldn't be much left of your face. And mom and dad, they'd always expected so much from you. And no, life wasn't fair. And now it's come to this. Fourteen dollars. This, I say, is this your mom? Yeah. You were crying and sniffling and crying. You swallowed. Yeah, yes. You had a library card. You had a 
video movie rental card, a social security card, $14 in cash. I wanted to take the bus pass, but the mechanic said only take the driver's license. An expired community college student card. You wanted to study something. You worked up a pretty intense cry at this point, so I pressed the gun a little harder against your cheek, and you started to step back until I said, Don't move, or you're dead right there. Now what did you study? Where? In college, I said. You have a student card. Oh, you didn't know. Sob, swallow, sniff, stuff. Stuff, biology. Listen now, you're gonna die, Raymond. K, 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 Hessel, tonight. You may die in one second or in one hour. You decide. So lie to me. Tell me the first thing off the top of your head. Make something up. I don't give a shit. I have the gun. Finally, you were listening, and out came the little tragedy in your head. Fill in the blank. What does Raymond want to be when he grows up? Go home, you said. You just wanted to go home. No shit, I said. But after that, how do you want to spend the rest of your life if you could do anything in the world? Make something up. You didn't know. Then you're dead right now, I said. I said, now turn your head. Death to commence in ten, in nine, in eight. A vet, you said. You wanted to be a vet, a veterinarian. That means animals. You have to go to school for that. It means too much school, you said. You could be in school working your ass off, Raymond Hessel, or you could be dead. You choose. I stuffed your wallet into your back pocket of your jeans. So if you really want to be an animal doctor, I took the saltwater muzzle off of the gun off one cheek and pressed it to the other. If that's what you always wanted to be, Dr. Raymond K. 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 Hessel, a veterinarian? Yeah. No shit? No. No, you meant it. Yes, no shit, yes. Okay, I said. I pressed the wet end of the muzzle to the top of your to the tip of your chin. And then the tip of your nose and everywhere I pressed the muzzle. Left a shiny wet ring of your tears. So, I said, go back to school. If you wake up tomorrow morning, you find a way to get back into school. I pressed the wet end of the gun on each cheek, then on your chin, then against your forehead, and I left the muzzle pressed there. You might as well be dead right now, I said. I have your license. I know who you are. I know where you live. I'm keeping your license. I'm going to check on you, Mr. Raymond K. Hessel, in three months, and then in six months, and then in a year. And if you weren't back in school on your way to becoming a veterinarian, I will kill you. You didn't say anything. Get out of here and do your little life. But remember, 
I am watching you, Raymond Hazel, and I'd rather kill you than see you working a shit job for just enough money to buy cheese and watch television. Now I'm going to walk away, so don't turn around. This is what Tyler wants me to do. These are Tyler's words coming out of my mouth. I am Tyler's mouth. I am Tyler's hand. Everybody in Project Mayhem is part of Tyler Durden and vice versa. Raymond K. K. Hessel, your dinner is going to taste better than any meal you have ever eaten. And tomorrow will be the most beautiful day in your entire life. Chapter 21 You wake up at Sky Harbor International. Set your watch back two hours. The shuttle takes me to downtown Phoenix. And every bar I go into there are guys with stitches around the rim of an eye. Where a good slam pack their face meat against sharp edges. There are guys with sideways noses. These guys in the bars, they see me the puckered hole in my cheek and we're instant family. Tyler hasn't been home for a while. I do my little job. I go to airport to airport to look at cars that people died in. The magic of travel. Tiny life. Tiny soaps. Tiny airline seats. Everywhere I travel I ask about Tyler in case I find him. The driver's licenses of my 12 human sacrifices are in my pocket. Every bar I walk into, every fucking bar, I see beat-up guys. Every bar, they throw an arm around me and want to buy me a beer. It's like I already know which bars are the Fight Club bars. I ask if they've seen a guy named Tyler Durden. It's stupid to ask if they know about Fight Club. Because the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. But have they seen Tyler? They say, never heard of him, sir. But you might find him in Chicago, sir. There must be, it must be the hole in my cheek. Everyone calls me sir. And then they wink. You wake up at O'Hare and take the shuttle to Chicago. You set your watch ahead an hour. You wake up in a different place if you wake up in a different time. Why can't you wake up as a different person? Every bar you go into, punched out guys want to buy you a beer. And no, sir, they have never met this Tyler Durden. And then they wink. They have never heard this name before, sir. I ask about Fight Club. Is there a Fight Club around here tonight? No, sir. The second rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. The punched out guys at the bar shake their heads. Never heard of it, sir. But you might find this fight club over yours in Seattle, sir. You wake up at Meg's Field and call Marla to see what's happening at Paper Street. Marla says now all the space monkeys are shaving their heads. Their electric razor gets hot. And now the whole house smells like singed hair. The space monkeys are using the lie to burn off their fingerprints. You wake up at SeaTac. You set your back, your watch back two hours. The shuttle takes you to downtown Seattle. The first bar you go into, the bartender is wearing a neck brace 
and tilts his head back so far that he has to look down his purple smashed eggplant of a nose to grin at you. The bar is empty, the bartender said. Welcome back, sir. I have never been to this bar, ever, ever before. I ask if he knows the name Tyler Durden. The bartender grins with his chin stuck out above the white neck brace and asks, is this a test? Yes, I say, it's a test. Have you ever met Tyler Durden? You stopped in last week, Mr. Durden, he said. Don't you remember? Tyler was here? You were here, sir. I have never been here before tonight. If you say so, sir, the bartender says. But Thursday night, you came in to ask how soon the police were planning to shut us down. Last Thursday night, I was awake all night with insomnia, wondering why I was awake. I, was I sleeping? I woke up late Friday morning, bone tired and feeling I hadn't had my eyes closed. Yes, sir, the bartender says. Thursday night, you were standing right where you are now and asking me about the police crackdown. And you were asking me how many guys we had to turn away from Wednesday night's fight club. The bartender twists his shoulders and braced neck to look around the empty bar and say, there's nobody that's going to hear Mr. Durden, sir. We had 27 count turn away last night. The place is always empty the night after a fight club. Every bar I walked into this week, everybody called me sir. Every bar I go into, the beat up fight club guys all start to look alike. How can a stranger know who I am? You have a birthmark. Mr. Durden, the bartender said, on your foot. It's shaped like a dark red Australia with a New Zealand next to it. Only Marla knows this. Marla and my father. Not even Tyler knows this. When I go to the beach, I sit with that foot tucked under me. The cancer I don't have is everywhere now. Everyone in Project Mayhem knows Mr. Durden. The bartender holds up his hand, the back of his hand towards me, a kiss burned into the back of his hand. My kiss. Tyler's kiss. Everybody knows about the birthmark, the bartender said. It's part of the legend. You're turning into a fucking legend, man. I called Marler from my Seattle motel room to ask if we'd ever done it. You know. Long distance, Marla says, what? Slept together. What? Have I ever, you know, had sex with her? Christ. Well? Well, she says. Have we ever had sex? You are such a piece of shit. Have we had sex? I could kill you. Is that a yes or a no? I knew this would happen, Marla says. You're such a flake. You love me. You ignore me. You save my life. Then you cook my mother into soap. I pinch myself. I ask Marla how we met. And that testicle cancer thing, Marla says. Then you saved my life. 
I saved your life. You saved my life. Mm, Tyler saved her life. You saved my life. I stick my finger through the hole in my cheek and wiggle the finger around. This should be good enough for Major League Pain to wake me up. Marla says, you saved my life at the Regent Hotel. I accidentally attempted suicide, remember? Oh. That night, Marla says, I, want, I said I wanted to have your abortion. We have just lost cabin pressure. I asked Marla what my name is. We're all going to die. Marla says, Tyler Durden. Your name is Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden. You live at 5123 Northeast Paper Street, which is currently teeming with your little disciples shaving their heads and burning their skin off with lye. I've got to get some sleep. You've got to get your ass back here, Marla yells on the phone, before these little trolls make soap of me. I have to find Tyler. The scar on her hand, I ask. Marla, how did you get it? You, Marla says. You kissed my hand. I've got to find Tyler. I've got to get some sleep. i got to go to sleep. i got to get to sleep. I tell Marla goodnight, and Marla's screaming is smaller, smaller, smaller. Gone as I reached over and hang up the phone. All right, yeah, that's where we're stopping tonight. We'll pick up chapter 22 on the next reading. All right, you guys, have a good night. I'm also going to remind you to go to my Twitter feed at damnedbooks underscore 451 and watch the video of Jon Stewart. That man is my hero. And as a former first responder, I was a medic for 15 years. To watch that man fight for the lives of 9-11 first responders gives me goosebumps every time. So instead of watching the planes hit the towers, I want you to watch Jon Stewart make fucking history. Have a good night, y'all. Oh, you know, my, you know, my, you know.